My lesson is entitled, Rest in Peace. And as you can see, I found a tombstone. This lesson is going to be a history lesson, and it's the obituary and eulogy for the United States of America. The United States of America was conceived November 11th, 1620, OS stands for Old Style Calendar. Country was born July 4th, 1776. And in my opinion, it died January 20th of 2021. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this lesson would be inspiration for the listeners, that they would hear the truth of history and that they would hear the truth of your word and not hear from Dan Steffes. I pray, Father, that you would bless this lesson now, that it may be something that would be of value to the body of believers gathered here. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The United States of America was conceived in a small ship called the Mayflower off the coast of Cape Cod, in 1620. A small band of settlers fleeing religious persecution and looking for a place to live were the foundation of this nation. They were hundreds of miles north of where they were supposed to land. And it just so happens that of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower, 41 were pilgrims or separatists. They were devout Christians fleeing the tyranny of the Church of England and the remaining passengers were considered common folk, which included merchants, craftsmen, indentured servants, and orphan children. The pilgrims called them strangers. And it was the pilgrims who defeated the mutiny of the others who were in rebellion to authority since they did not land in northern Virginia where their charters said they were supposed to land. The band of pilgrims and strangers on, on that ship put together a charter that was the basis of their government and the foundation of our nation. And I'd like to read for you the full text of the Mayflower Compact. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancements of the Christian faith Amen. and the honor of our King and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof we have hereunto 
subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord, King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and Scotland, the 54th, 1620. The compact was signed by 41 men on November 11th, OS, which would be November 21st on our calendar, NS. The calendar the pilgrims used was the Julian calendar, which England was still using until 1752. OS stands for Old Style. The Julian calendar was off by 11 minutes and 15 seconds every year. So it was November 21st on our Gregorian calendar, which is NS, or New Style. Now, did you notice that the compact mentions God first? In the preamble, it says, In the name of God, amen. And in the body, for the glory of God. And in the presence of God. The pilgrims put God first in what they did, even in the face of starvation and disease, when half of their company died the first winter. The government they established was based on Scripture and God's law as best as they knew it. They put it into practice, the love of God, the love of their fellow man, caring for those who did not believe as they did, even treating the natives with respect. They tried to have all things in common, but found it catered to the lazy and afterwards established free enterprise, each family responsible for raising their own crops. Peace and prosperity flourished for over 50 years until King Philip's War in 1675. King Philip was the Christian name given to the son of Massasoit, who was the king of the Indians that made peace treaty with the pilgrims. It has been almost 402 years since the pilgrims landed. How much of what they practiced is still practiced today? Now, during the commemoration of the 300th anniversary of the Mayflower landing in 1920, Governor Calvin Coolidge, who became president a few years later, stated the following in an address. And I quote, The compact which they signed was an event of the greatest importance. It was the foundation of liberty based on law and order, and that tradition has been steadily upheld. They drew up a form of government which has been designated as the first real constitution of modern times. It was democratic, an acknowledgment of liberty under law and order, and the giving to each person the right to participate in the government while they promised to be obedient to the laws. But the really wonderful thing was that they had the power and strength of character to abide by it and live by it from that day to this. Some governments are better than others, but any form of government is better than anarchy. And any attempt to tear down government is an attempt to wreck civilization. The key to the peace and prosperity that the pilgrims lived in was due to the biblical foundation they built upon it. They built it upon, pardon me. They were God-fearing, which gave them the power and strength to live it. 
They put God first in their lives, and they were blessed for it. The Make Forward Compact was the foundation of this nation, built on biblical principles, and the birth of our nation occurred about 150 years later. And that occurred on July 4, 1776, when Congress declared separation from England. And I'd like to read to you the Declaration of Independence. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, which in the course, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of reputed, repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And there follows 29 complaints and grievances and accusations against the King of England and the British Parliament. And then it ends with this paragraph. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, 
conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So the United States was born on July 4, 1776, when the Continental Congress declared its independence and separation from Great Britain. Now, did you notice the difference in the text between the Mayflower Compact and this Declaration of Independence? The preamble starts out more secular. Human events, people, political bands, powers of the earth, equal station, the laws of nature, before mentioning nature's God. In the second paragraph, it starts out with the humanist view that all men are created equal, and then saying that the Creator has given them rights, where the biblical, pilgrim, and Christian worldview is that we have duties to love and serve God and one another. It is not until the concluding paragraph that Congress appeals to God for the fulfilling of their intentions and states their reliance on the protection of divine providence. We know that God saw the colonies through the hardships of war and that George Washington was a godly man of upstanding character who led the army to victory. But the Declaration did not put God first. In spite of our founding fathers' faults, God did bless the birth of this nation. To hold the colonies together, the Continental Congress put together a document called the Articles of Confederation that gave the United Colonies a form of national government. And I'd like to read some of the paragraphs from that. To all to whom these presents shall come, we, the undersigned delegates of the states, affixed to our names, send greeting. Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Bay, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. The first article states, the style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. That officially named our country. There was a total of 10 articles in the Articles of Confederation, and the first established that official name. And there were nine more that established the form of government between the states. The concluding paragraphs of the Articles state this, And whereas it hath pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of the legislatures we respectively represent in Congress to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Know ye that we, the undersigned delegates, by virtue of the power and authority to us given for that purpose, do by these presents, in the name and in the behalf of our respective constituents, 
fully and entirely ratify and confirm each and every of the said articles of confederation and perpetual union and all and singular the matters and things therein contained. And we do further solemnly plight and engage the faith of our respective constituents that they shall abide by the determinations of the United States in Congress assembled on all questions which by the said confederation are submitted to them and that the articles thereof shall be inviolably observed by the states we respectively represent, and that the union shall be perpetual. In witness whereof we have hereunto set our hands in Congress, done at Philadelphia in the state of Pennsylvania, the ninth day of July, in the year of our Lord, 1778, and in the third year of the independence of America. This was adopted on July 9th, 1778, while the war for independence was still being fought. It only has a slight mention of God calling him the great governor of the world. The articles did not give Congress much power, and there were problems that could not be handled. Bigger states abused the smaller states economically, and some states were not contributing to the national government. Congress had no power to deal with these issues. And because of this, a constitutional convention was called for and established to iron out the problems. In the process, the articles were scrapped and a new constitution with a new form of government was established. And I'd like to read the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. We, the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The Constitution was, a, was drafted and adopted on seven, uh, September 17, 1787 with ratification on June 21, 1788. The federal government began operations on March 4, 1789. The Constitution does not mention God. It only allows for the free practice of religion in the First Amendment and any religion. It does not specify the Christian religion. And it also says in Article 6 that this Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, which is contrary to God's law, which should be supreme. Amen. It provided for the balance of power between three branches, the legislative body with two houses, executive, judicial, and checks and balances to keep each under control. But it was built and organized by men. And as you can see today, when one political party controls most of the branches of government, abuse of power occurs. Imagine what it would be like if the Supreme Court had a liberal majority. When asked what form of government the convention created, according to a witness, Benjamin Franklin replied, 
a republic if you can keep it. The word republic comes from the Latin res publica, which means simply the public things, or more simply, the law. Democracy, on the other hand, is derived from the Greek words demos and kretin, which means, or translate to, the people to rule. Democracy, therefore, has always been synonymous with majority rule. A republic is supposed to protect the minority from the abuse of the majority because it is a government by the rule of law. Now, the following that I'm going to read to you is from a New American website article called A Republic If You Can Keep It. The Founding Fathers supported the view that, in the words of the Declaration of Independence, men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. They recognized that such rights should not be violated by an unrestrained majority any more than they should be violated by an unrestrained king or monarch. In fact, they recognized that majority rule would quickly degenerate into mobocracy and then into tyranny. They had studied the history of both the Greek democracies and the Roman Republic. They had a clear understanding of the relative freedom and stability that had characterized the latter, the Roman Republic, and of the strife and turmoil quickly followed by despotism that had characterized the Greek world. In drafting the Constitution, they created a government of law and not of men, a republic and not a democracy. John Adams, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, championed the new Constitution in his state precisely because it would not create a democracy. Democracy never lasts long, he noted. It soon wastes and exhausts and murders itself. He insisted that there was never a democracy that did not commit suicide. New York's Alexander Hamilton, in June 21, 1788, speech urging ratification of the Constitution in his state, thundered, It has been observed that a pure democracy, if it were practical, would be the most perfect government. Experience has proved that no position is more false than this. The ancient democracies in which the people themselves deliberated never possessed one good feature of government. Their very character was tyranny. Their figure deformity. Earlier at the Constitution Convention, Hamilton had stated, we are a Republican government. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. James Madison, who is rightly known as the father of the Constitution, wrote in in the Federalist number 10, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property and have in general been as short in their lives as they are violent in their deaths. The Federalist Papers were written during the time of the ratification debate to encourage the citizens of New York to support the new Constitution. So of all the governments, uh, that's the end of the article there, uh, of all the governments created by man, a republic is the most stable 
and protects the citizens the best, but even republics do not last. Our republic died a gradual death due to attacks from within, and many believe that the greatest period of Christian liberty and blessings were prior to 1788, prior to the Constitution. After the adoption of the Constitution, the country became less and less Christian. And that was a gradual process. The Constitution does not have the word democracy in it. But it guarantees that every state should have a Republican form of government. The humanist democratic mindset was present early in this country. Many of our early presidents were democratic in their beliefs and principles. Andrew Jackson in particular, he is considered the organizer and father of the modern Democratic Party. Even Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address uses the words, all men are created equal, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people should not perish from the earth. So back to the article. The 20th century brought forth a greater push that democracy was good government. Woodrow Wilson in 1916 made his famous appeal that our nation should enter World War I to make the world safe for democracy. And Franklin Roosevelt's 1940 statement that America must be the great arsenal for democracy when seeking to aid Britain in World War II. The War Department's 1928 Manual for Citizen Training called democracy a government of the masses, authority derived from mass meeting or any other form of direct expression, results in mobocracy, attitude toward property is communistic, negating property rights, attitude of the law is that the will of the majority shall regulate, whether it be based upon deliberation or governed by passion, prejudice, and impulse without restraint or regard to consequences. It results in demag demagogism, license, agitation, discontent, and anarchy. That definition was removed by 1932, and the entire manual was scrapped in 1936, thanks to the efforts of Democrat Senator Homer Truett Bone of Washington State. By 1952, the U.S. Army's Soldier's Guide stated that because the United States is a democracy, the majority of the people decide how our government will be organized and run. So much for following the Constitution. Continuing, many have warned against the march to democracy in 1931, England's Duke of Northumberland issued a booklet entitled The History of World Revolution, in which he stated, the adoption of democracy as a form of government by all European nations is fatal to good government, to liberty, to law and order, to respect for authority and to religion, and must eventually produce a state of chaos from which a new world tyranny will arise. That sounds like he's talking about the new world order. 
That quote's from 1931. Prior to that, Lord Acton, an English Catholic historian who passed away in 1902, said, The one pervading evil of democracy is the tyranny of the majority, or rather of that party, not always the majority, that succeeds by force or fraud in carrying elections. Sounds prophetic to me, doesn't it? Like 2020 election? He is the man who that also said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And here are some of his other quotes. The one pervading evil of democracy is the tyranny of the majority. Socialism means slavery. Official truth is not actual truth. That sounds like fake news, right? Our President Biden said, we choose truth, not facts. Lord Acton also said, it is easier to find people to fit to govern themselves than people fit to govern others. Also from the New American article, 18th century historian Alexander Fraser Teitler, Lord Woodhousley, argued that a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by dictatorship. And 20th century British writer G.K. Chesterton put it, You can never have a revolution in order to establish a democracy. You must have a democracy in order to have a revolution. Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto stated, The first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. Communist Mao Zedong proclaimed in 1939, Taken as a whole, the Chinese revolutionary movement led by the Communist Party embraces the two stages, i.e., the democratic and socialist revolutions, which are essentially different revolutionary processes, and the second process can be carried through only after the first has been completed. The democratic revolution is the necessary preparation for the socialist revolution, and the socialist revolution is the inevitable sequel to democratic revolution. The ultimate aim for which all communists strive is to bring about a socialist and communist society. The death of the United States was due to many attacks of the enemy within, moral decay, and the sin and apathy of the people a lack of knowledge, and a lack of a biblical worldview. January 20th, 2021 was the day that democracy declared victory over our republic. Our current president, vice president, speaker of the house, the Senate majority leader, and multiple media pundits have all declared that this is a democracy. And you can see the results today. 
The decay we see is what happens to a culture that is sick and dying. Some functions continue, but on the whole, rigor mortis sets in and decomposition continues. CRT, racial and gender equity, class warfare, the LBGTQ plus agenda, special treatment for different groups, open borders, no cash bail, political prosecutions, deficit spending, supply chain issues, inflation, etc., 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 are all the results of a sick culture and dying nation. The nation that we once knew is going, going, gone. At one time, the United States could be called a Christian nation, but no longer. Our nation's destiny, and for that matter, all nations of this earth, must come to an end. And the prophets predicted it. If you would turn to Isaiah 34, verses 1 and 2. Prophet Isaiah says, Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Isaiah 40, 15 to 17. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. In Isaiah 60, verse 12, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The prophet Jeremiah states in Jeremiah 25, 31, and 32. A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coast of the earth. All nations shall be judged just as all people shall be judged. As Isaiah stated, every nation that does not serve the Lord shall be wasted and destroyed. So consider these promises that God made to his people. In Jeremiah 30, verse 11, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. God's people are going to be judged and go through the judgment of the nations. Jeremiah 46, verse 28. Fear not thou, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. 
For I will make a full end of all nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Israel has been and will be punished again for our sins and iniquities. Just as Noah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered through the judgments upon Israel in their generation, they were saved in and from the punishment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fire, saved in the fire. Daniel was saved in the lion's den. Daniel 2, verse 44 says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. There is only one nation that God has loved and has ever loved. And that is Jacob Israel. Deuteronomy 14.2 For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord hath chosen to be, a be, to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. 1 Chronicles 17.21 And what one nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, by driving out nations from before thy people, whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. In Jeremiah 51, 19 and 20. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Psalm 47, 1 through 4. O clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. Selah. These words concern the Savior who will reign in the kingdom of God, starting in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is Jesus. And when Jesus referenced himself, his favorite term for himself was the Son of Man. Revelations 19, 15 and 16. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, it says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And I just read previously that Israel is the rod of his inheritance. We are going to be servants and ministers to the King of Kings in his government. Matthew 25, 31 through 33. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. You know, there's sheep people, and there's goat people, but there's also goat nations. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That's all forms of government in this world all have to be subject to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are to be kingdom-bound people seeking His kingdom. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Luke 12, 31 through 32. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hebrews eleven fourteen to 16 For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, the new Jerusalem. So do not mourn over the death of the United States. We need to seek a better country and the city of the great king. These words describe the situation that we are in today. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. If we are dead to this world and have died in Christ, we will live in spite of what goes on around us. Because Christ lives and lives in us. He will bring us into his kingdom. 
Isaiah 45, 17 says, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. So let us apply our national motto to our lives. In God we trust. Because our nation is no longer following those words. But we can follow those words. May we rest in the peace that Jesus Christ has given us. Amen.